You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLegge. It can be difficult to arrive at a definitive diagnosis for many of the common gastroenterological symptoms. When should physicians consider motility abnormalities, which are often difficult to diagnose and treat, and frankly, are a bane of my existence? Our guest, Dr. Jack Ryder, will bring us up to date on what physicians need to know about gut motility. Dr. Ryder is professor in the Departments of Physiology and Biophysics in the Department of Medicine Division of Gastroenterology at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine in beautiful Richmond, Virginia. Welcome, Jack. Thank you, Mark. Now, Jack, I'm going to say this to start off with. I'm a simple clinician, so you're going to have to go slow with me. Okay. What I want to know here is, what's the actual underlying mechanism of propulsion in the gut? What do I need to know about that? The first thing to know is that it's a neurally mediated proposition. You have to have a signal that comes from the lumen that somehow or another activates a really complex reflex arc to move muscles, both circular and longitudinal, in an appropriate way. That's usually done through a stimulus derived from the intraluminal contents that gets transduced by mucosal signals. Typically, we think of serotonin right now as the key kind of player that activates the reflex. Once that reflex is activated, either a, a local sensory neuron or a sensory neuron that comes in from outside of the gut so that it can relay signals back up to the spinal cord is activated, and that then connects to a series of neurons within the two plexuses, the submucosal plexus and the myenteric plexus. These neurons then, through a series of both ORAD-directed, CAUDAD-directed interneurons, short neurons, ultimately cause a, a contraction above or ORAD to the site of stimulus, a relaxation CAUDAD or distal. And then this coordinated contractile relaxation really squeezes and pushes material down in the right direction, keeps it going in the right direction. That's kind of the basic wiring diagram that we work with and then try and look at how disease states modify that or how drugs can act upon that to turn it on or off. So, Jack, when you talk about luminal stimulation, can that vary, meaning is it mainly bulk or can it be a chemical or the type of food you ingest or you get what I'm saying? Right. That's interesting. Experimentally, I think we, for years in the early studies, would look at a stimulus that was a distending stimulus, the thought of a bolus of food or a a large fecal-type stimulus that would actually stretch the walls and activate the reflex. Over the years, more and more, we've come to realize that the really most of the motility is stimulated by either very slight shear forces of the fluids that move right along the mucosa and and simply deform villi. These villi are full of cells that respond to simple passage of material, even liquid that doesn't distend the wall, and also the same cells 
if you will, taste what's in the lumen so that short-chain fatty acids can stimulate things like glucose and all can activate reflex arcs or activate specific cells that respond to them in the lumen. And even within the past two or three years, we're starting to see the presence or there's a great deal of evidence now that there are actual taste receptors all the way through the gut, the same ones that are in the oral cavity and the pharynx. And, and I think this is a whole untapped area of development now that we really taste throughout the entire gut and this tasting process activates these reflex arcs. The two then can work in conjunction. The mechanical stimulus, the chemical stimulus works together to really enhance stimuli that come in from the lumen. Jack, with that, I'm going to jump right to this. I know that's a pretty complicated scenario. I know you broke it down for us into components, but are there certain components that we can actually target if we're going to create a therapy? Absolutely. I think we have lots of examples that are out there already in use. Probably the oldest one that we know of are the opioids, things like morphine and codeine and all the opioid-related drugs as well as natural products have been around, you know, since almost the, the earliest days of pharmaceuticals. And opioids actually inhibit a component of the reflex arc. They inhibit that uh, relaxation that occurs ahead of a bolus of material that's to be propelled. And as a consequence, the gut doesn't relax to receive it. So we knock out one part of a reflex arc and we get an increased contractility, and you can see that radiologically. You can feel it, actually, in the, in the painful constrictures that occur. So opioids target one, and, of course, we now use that as loperamide and those kinds of drugs to, to knock out one part of the reflex arc. The other way is to try and turn on the reflex. We can do that in one way is to increase the contractility with things that cause release of acetylcholine or mimic the contractile responses, but they're often not as good because they only activate one part of the reflex. The recent development of the 5-HT4, the serotonin 4 receptor agonists, things like tegacerod, really I think are leading the way because the initial transduction of the signal from the luminal cell is to release serotonin locally, and the serotonin then acts on this 5-HT4-type receptor on the sensory neuron and really turns on the entire reflex arc that occurs naturally. That's using what we know of the reflex arcs to really target them. Of course, tegacerod has some side effects that had it pulled, but I think the future is looking at these kind of natural reflexes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio and XM160. The Channel for Medical Professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLeggi, and joining me to discuss the motility of the gut. What do we know as Dr. Jack Ryder, professor in the Departments of Physiology and Biophysics and the Department of Medicine Division of Gastroenterology at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine? Well, Jack, you were talking a little bit there about serotonin, and obviously that's the big buzzword. You mentioned how important serotonin is in the whole propulsion mechanism and I guess in some of the sensory mechanism. So I have to just lead in and say, does serotonin have a role in the pathologies of the gut? Because it seems like a lot of pharmacotherapy today is starting to move in that direction. That's a key question. 
I will say that from animal models, there's a great deal of evidence that there are several players. One is the enterochromaffin cell, and these are the 5-HT serotonin-containing cells of the gut. And in animal models of colitis and in inflammatory diseases, there's an increase in the serotonin content in the mucosa. There's an increase in the number of enterochromaffin cells. So we see states in which there's a great deal of increase in the stimulus molecule, serotonin, in things like IBS with the diarrhea component. In contrast, in models in which there's the constipation component, there's usually a decrease. The second player is the uptake mechanisms. There's a CERT, or serotonin reuptake transporter, that removes serotonin from the system. And that's usually down-regulated in these models. And so, depending upon whether the pathological state causes an increase in serotonin content or decrease in the destructive uptake molecule, you can get either diarrhea, if there's too much serotonin, or constipation if there's not enough. That's great in the animal models. When we've gone and looked in the human, the consistent finding is that in diarrhea, there's an increase in serotonin content. In constipation, there's usually a decrease in serotonin content. The correlation, though, with numbers of enterochromaffin cells or with CERT levels isn't yet 100%. I think everyone agrees that alterations in serotonin handling, metabolism, and synthesis are key components to a variety of pathologies. Nailing down which pathology is connected to CERT, which pathology is connected to enterochromaffin cell numbers, which is connected to serotonin release, has been difficult. And it's controversial. Different studies come up with different results. I think everyone agrees across the board that they're probably involved. But given the fact that you can use antagonists of serotonin and alleviate many of the components of these illnesses, that is, you can alleviate the diarrhea or the constipation, you can alleviate the increased hypersensitivity, you can alleviate some of the pain that comes along with with these diseases, strongly suggests that 5-HT is a key player. We just haven't nailed down exactly where yet. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you is that you pointed this out before is the drugs that we had, 5-HT3 antagonists, 5-HT4 agonists have been pulled. Specifically with regards to, I'll say, the 5-HT4 agonists with regards to being a promotility agent, we really don't have much to work with here in the U.S. with promotility drugs. Have we overdone the serotonin worry from the FDA's perspective? From my understanding of the reasons that these were pulled, especially the 5-HC4, you know, there was an increased risk of stroke, of heart disease, electrophysiological effects, the same thing with cisapride. From my reading, most of the patients had some pre-existing cardiac illnesses. Considering the benefit that this drug had for folks, it was really one of the most beneficial promotility agents. Yeah, in my view, yes, I think they prematurely pulled it. The hope is maybe the sequelae of that is to get pharmaceutical 
companies really working at getting a nice, clean agonist doesn't have these side effects. And I think you know that's probably what the attempt is now to look at something that's much cleaner. I still believe that serotonin drugs are probably the key players, but there are other ones in development. The modalides. The modalides have been around for a long, long time. They are not as effective. They work through stimulating cholinergics. As I said earlier, what they do is they enhance the propulsive, the contractile component, without really enhancing the inhibitory component, so they're not quite as effective. Ghrelin, which is an analog or a, another hormone that's similar to the metalides, has some potential, especially in the upper GI tract. And finally, the cannabinoids. There seems to be a tonic inhibitory cannabinoid tone that suppresses motility throughout the gut. And I know that there are some investigators looking at using cannabinoids to stimulate motility. So there are other things in the offing, and I, and I think the more we understand the components of this reflex arc, the more we understand you know, how the neurons are hooked together and how they produce the stimulatory effects that they do, the more sophisticated our drugs become. But the hope is that the serotonin, people haven't been scared off, pharmaceuticals have not been scared off by the adverse effects of the gastroid and olefotron. I would like to thank my guest from the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine, Dr. Jack Greider. Dr. Greider, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. Thank you. You've been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Update your clinical knowledge and improve your delivery of patient care by registering for the 2010 AGA Clinical Congress. By attending, you'll learn from renowned experts in the field who will address the most relevant clinical issues in gastroenterology and hepatology. The Congress will be in Las Vegas January 15th and 16th, with an optional add-on sedation course January 17th. Bring your nurse and attend this team-based course to obtain the essential information and hands-on training to safely and effectively administer sedation for GI procedures. Learn more and register today at www.gastro.org slash clinical congress. The American Gastroenterological Association is the trusted voice of the GI community. Our membership has grown to include 17,000 members from around the globe who are involved in all aspects of the science, practice, and advancement of gastroenterology. Discover what the AGA could mean to you. Visit www.gastro.org.